Welcome to the Sacred Stew. I'm your host, James, and this is my co-host, Anthony. And tonight, we are going to be delving into a very popular topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the Germanic soul and how it works. Last week, uh, we talked about the coming of Rig and mm -hmm. the you know the different folk and 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 whatnot and we promised this week that we were going to talk about the soul the dramatic soul um before we jump into that topic though was there anything about last week's episode that you wanted to add some information to or had some comments on about the soul specifically we touched on for lack of a better term the soul capabilities or the soul attributes um that are different between a Jarl, someone of the Jarl class, someone of the Carl class, or someone of the Thrall cast. And I had the idea floating around in my head that due to the fact what were originally um spiritual indicators moved to strictly social indicators and their significance lost due to the coming of Christianity, um, that it might potentially be hit and miss on who has what soul capacities. Like for instance, um, somebody, a father could have the soul capabilities of say a Carl, but, genetic lapses for lack of a better term the son could have a thrall or a jarl's uh soul capabilities just due to the amount of inmixing because to a certain degree when i think about it thralls coupled with thralls carls with carls and jarls with jarls and so with that becoming more of a social then it's spiritual and all the mix up that that would have caused, especially once the Christians took over and kind of outed a bunch of people. Um, I had thought maybe that might be uh, why we seem to have so much spiritual mix up these days. Well, and we can't really talk about like the Germanic uh, theological perception of the soul without being a little bit controversial in this episode, because uh, a lot of people, they, they put a lot of different meanings behind things like uh, thralls, like you said, like being slaves and such. Um, but that was a shift in our uh, society when we began looking at it as social statuses, uh, where originally these were inherent qualities that were born into the individual and, and recognized by the father claiming the child. Patrilineal line is the line in Germanic theology that passes the soul to the next generation. And it's never traced anywhere through a mother's line in our people's history whatsoever. Um, that's not to say that women aren't important because they do actually take a very significant role in the hereafter in the functions uh, that they get responsibilities for for example, becoming part of the DCR. Um, but as far as the social classes and that transition from where, where we perceived it as a quality or state of people, that happened because of out, outside forces coming into Europe 
and making those changes. What's interesting along with that, we can look at the genetic studies that are coming out of Europe on the migrations of the folk. And it came in two or three waves. And it's always kind of crossed my mind as being significant that our own lore layers this current information that we're just now starting to understand with all these genetic studies. Uh, but our lore seems to have already captured this, that there was three different phases or coming of our folk. And I think it's also significant to bring up from last week when we we're talking about rig. And I know that we mentioned it, but we really didn't go in depth about it, how when Rig came, he came with three gifts with him. The sheaf of grain for like crops to grow crops, the fire auger to start fire, mm -hmm. the need fire, and then the runes. And it's significant to me that each one of those lines that he bred seems to have inherited one of those gifts that he came with to give and i think there's a great correlation between those three gifts and the three lines that he bred i mean i can see it with the the jarls and the runes you know as far as uh gothies and githias um to a certain degree uh i don't know if they're synonymous but like uh vitkies and vulvas um using the runes and guiding folks in spiritual matters um and uh being the ones to uh know and administer the rune laws laid down by Heimdall as rig when he came down um and i can see the wheat for the thralls you know, because back then, um, a lot of it was agricultural work, um, and that's what a lot of the working class did. Um, but if you're, if in this we're tying the fire auger for the need fire to Carl's, I'm not quite seeing that connection. Yes, it's it's a difficult one where you can easily make the connections to the runes and you can easily make the connections with the sheaf of grain. But what exactly does that fire auger represent? And uh, I don't think anybody's really put a lot of theories out there as far as that goes, because the Carls have always been assumed as being like the warrior caste of folk. Um, the folk that not only build things, but also um, are first to battle and great in battle. Um, the connection that I would make, and there's no literary or um, etic information that shines light on this, but this is just my own personal thoughts on it, is that fire auger represents that power um, of essentially like Thor's hammer when it strikes the iron and it's that spark flashes, you mm -hmm. know, that that is that spark in that fire, that flame of, of protection that he creates. And that's just kind of an esoteric thought I've had on it for years now. Uh, I don't know if there's actual correlations to that, but that's just kind of my th my thoughts on it. Yeah, well, as we're talking, the one thing that kind of came to my mind 
Um, if I'm not mi- if I'm not mixing things, I believe, you know, like blacksmiths, uh, bakers, and that such would have technically been of the Carl class. And for things like that, you definitely need fire. Like you're not going to be able to make weapons and armor without fires. You're not going to be able to cook or bake without fire. So thinking about it that way too, like that kind of makes sense. Like I feel like those, um, I mean, obviously everybody needs fire for, you know, warmth and light, but um, especially back then uh, people with trades, you know, like I said, especially blacksmiths and cooks and bakers, uh, they need fire just to be able to do their work. And without that work, the thralls wouldn't have the tools to do their work, and uh, warriors wouldn't uh, warriors wouldn't have their their armor, and the goatees wouldn't have armorings. That's kind of why I made that connection between the fire auger and the coral class myself. Um, it just makes sense to me. But I mean, the lore is layered. There's lots of different meanings to things. I guess what comes down, you know, to to tonight's conversation is, you know, the soul and what does that represent? Because there was three different lines. And we had mentioned last week about how out of those lines, only one of them did Rig recognize and acknowledge as his son. And that was the Yarl, the Yarl line. And he taught him the runes, the laws, everything that would be needed for the governance of our folk and to build culture and society this is of great debate and it's really funny you know because there's other places that are currently having this internal debate amongst themselves about whether or not the folk actually believed in the soul whether the soul had components or parts to it what's your understanding of our souls well so i mean to start off on the basic level we are not just uh, a meat suit with a spirit inside, a, a singular spirit inside. Um, the way I understood it, and I've heard different numbers, um, but there's multiple parts. Um, your physical body would be considered a manifestation of the spirit. Um, your thoughts, your thought and your memory would it, are two aspects of your soul. Your um your your luck um your um i want to say the terms megan just as in nature that nothing's a singularity there are multiple parts to our soul that some speculate um upon death go back to where they came from maybe they get quote unquote recycled reused or not um but basically that are we have multiple parts to what we would call a soul now our ancestors may not have had that word specifically but i definitely feel that even if they didn't have a specific word for it the concept that they're describing is what we would now call a soul You know, the interesting thing is, if we're talking about linguistics and the word soul, is that word is specifically Germanic. And a lot of people try to claim 
that the soul was a Christian idea. It came with Christianity. Uh, but, but here's the thing. The very first use of the word soul in writing was in the 6th century, like around 700, um, when Beowulf was composed. That's the very first attestation of the word soul. That word is only traced in Germanic tongues. When the Christians came, they used the word pneuma or spirit to represent like the soul, the pneuma of the person. And that word is also linked to other Indo-European tongues and languages with the word um, anima. Or in Old Norse, it would be owned. That would be the relative word. So I'm not so sure that because many people on the Germanic pagan the theological side argue that the own that Odin breath, uh, breathed into us was our souls. But I'm not so sure that that view is correct because the word soul itself being derived from the word sea, like an ocean, uh, actually it depicted originally um, a huge lake. Um, we still see the word captured in Lithuanian today where they have the word soul, siela, which means soul in English. And Lithuanian is a unique Indo-European tongue because it's still an archaic form of an Indo-European language that's still spoken in the modern day. So that their language has captured this and has preserved it for all of these centuries is quite interesting to me on this conversation of the soul, because was the idea of a soul actually Germanic? And then it was incorporated into Christian theology because they couldn't uh, get around that existence in the folks mind during the conversion periods. And I mean, personally, like I just get irritated with the if somebody doesn't like something or they don't understand something or it doesn't fit in with their intellectual model of what it should be. Oh, this just falls under Christian influence and we need to ignore it without even doing some doing some basic investigation on the topic. Like there's plenty of things I don't know, you know. But my first instinct isn't, oh, it must be it, it must be Christian. Like I either read a book or I tap my big brain guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in when we're looking at that first usage of that word soul, too, because Beowulf is very crypto pagan and it's what it's talking about. It's not a lot of people try to say that it's heavily saturated with Christian thoughts and ideas. But what it actually is, it, it is a crypto-pagan work where they were still trying to capture the beliefs of our ancestors, but doing it in a way that it would be preserved through Christian edit, uh, editing. I believe that even in Christian times, the Jarls, the kings, you know, all the, all the high-class people, they were still very much an emphasis on remembering their family lines. And even if they didn't believe in the pagan, I believe the words iconography or the symbolism, um, they would have still had pieces of that in there to remember that 
that was a part of their ancestry. That was a part of where they came from. Well, even more than that, their title and claim to being kings was based on their patrilineal descent from the gods, even as Christians. Yeah, so, I mean, they they weren't going to sever the ties to what uh, what gave them their rank for anything. Even if you take the you humorist, I believe, approach, which I vehemently disagree with, I, I, I don't believe it's a thing that the gods and goddesses were just great human folk that were elevated to the status of godhood. Like, you're still not going to you're still not going to let go of that because those are great ancestors. Like the gods are, are our ancestors anyway. They're not going to let that go. Right. And, you know, just to explain to people who don't know what euhemerism is, it is a school of thought where they equate uh, our old Norse and Germanic gods as being human rather than gods. They, speculate that these were great men that lived in times past that legends made them into gods over time. Uh, I personally don't subscribe to that line of thinking. I believe that the gods were absolutely real. Um, were they real in our form? Uh, not exactly. You know, they are beings of some other sort, though I believe they can take our forms. They can take different forms. The lore speaks profoundly about the gods taking different forms and shapes and you can see an, and they can see an example of the you humorous thought in snorri's prose edda and the gilfaniging which translates out to the tricking of gilfi where at the end uh all the gods and goddesses just disappear like they were never there and snorri goes on to say that uh, these were just the the leaders of Troy, and they came over into the Germanic lands, and they try to falsely cognate Assyr to Asia man. Right. And, you know, the sad thing about that is um, it's not really Snorri that propagated the idea. That was already an idea that the Roman Catholic Church was propagating throughout Europe um, to essentially try to teach our people or trick our people into believing that our gods weren't real. Snorri was just, you know, a person of his time. He saw the world exactly how, how it was taught to him. And I don't believe he had ill intention to try to like change the history of things, but that's what was taught to him. And that's what he believed. That's how he viewed the world. So when he's writing about these things, he's writing it from that perspective. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that school of thought is, I mean, was founded uh, by, I forget the guy's name, but he uh, he was a Roman well before Snorri's time. And, you know, just to kind of reiterate on the lore, the, the two Eddas, like, Snorri was not looking to recreate a sacred lore. He was trying to create a means of teaching skaldic poetry and... He was writing as a man in his time thought. Right, exactly. As, as as he understood the world, like any of us would do, you know, with good or bad intentions. And I honestly don't think he had bad intentions. I don't think he necessarily cared enough about the history and about the myths themselves 
to have bad intention. Right. No, exactly. And for those who don't know, e- e- humorism uh, was named after uh, e- humorous who lived in like the fourth century BC. Um, and he essentially tried to equate all of the gods at the time to, to humans from, from the lore. And that tradition lived on uh, him, Plato, I actually hold those two responsible for the destruction of uh, those societies because they drove people away from being true and faithful to their gods. So that's an interesting conversation of its own. Regarding the soul, though, I did want to go back to Beowulf because their description of the soul in there is, to me, I've always found it really profound. And the reason why is because when he describes the soul, he's describing that his soul will leave his body and from that point return to the sea where the whales bathe and where the swans dance in the sea, right? Mm -hmm. I always find that profound because the only language in the world that has the word soul is the Germanic tongues. And it describes the soul belonging to a greater body of water. And we have this concept in our faith of the kinwell, and that our souls are drawn from the kinwell. And I see this as a piece of evidence for that belief because Beowulf clearly captures the tie between the two. Yeah. And, um, Touching back on Rig for a second, um, his mother's being equated to the nine waves. I like. I don't know if it's especially relevant, but that's what I thought of when Beowulf talked about his his soul going back to the sea, uh, going back to Rig's mother's. And then I also um, thought of uh, the Kenwell as well. So yeah, that's um, that's super super powerful. You know, and I believe the information points to the fact that the soul probably references some sort of collective, which is a part of the greater body of the folk. As Beowulf says, the siola or the soul returns to the sail, the sea. So it's like a play on words of a folk consciousness or kinwell concept that is being expressed. Yeah. And I mean, it can also realistically, I mean, whether people uh necessarily view us having individual souls i haven't met a heathen that doesn't acknowledge the folk soul so it it could also very much the folk soul being a sea and each of us uh is but a drop of water in that sea exactly and you know you when, when you talk about the soul you obviously have to talk about the folk soul soul and folkishness in general Uh, I've seen some videos on YouTube where there's people that try to discredit the idea of uh, folkish Asatru, you know, where they say that this is a modern invention. It didn't exist. Um, But the thing is, the fact is, is it's always existed. Tacitus in 92 AD or whenever he wrote uh, his works on Germania, he specifically talks about how the Germanic people didn't interbreed with other people. They didn't corrupt their own folk with foreign influences. He wrote about this over 2,000 years ago. 
So this definitely isn't a new modern concept. I can't think of of any ethnic tradition that doesn't have a strong folkish, what we would call folkish mindset because it's of their people, except anything under monotheism. Well, and, you know, there is examples in the lore. Uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with the lay of Hinla? No, not by name. Uh, There's a lot that I remember with details of the stories, but I'm horrible with names. So uh, Hinlulth or the lay of Hinla is essentially it it means like the uh, the poem of the bitch. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a discussion between Hinla and which is Golveig Hyde and Freya. And they're discussing about the uh, descendants of the gods. And in that lay, which is, this is part of the poetic Edda, in that lay, you know, Freya is specifically talking about um, how men were born from the gods above. And that a wager was made in the foreign metal of Otar the Young and Engatir that they had to guard essentially for the young or those to come in the future, the father's wealth or inheritance for the fruit of his kin. You know, to me, that is the most folkish part of our lore that explains to us the reasons and the importance of protecting our brood, if you will. And the whole poem is talking about Hinla or the bitches children not being of noble descent right and not Mm -hmm. being born from the gods because if we remember from the last episode we started talking a little bit about Golveig Hyde and how she came and started breeding with men and teaching them and corrupting their minds and so this conversation is actually talking about uh, Rig when Rig came and the founding of the his, his birth lines that he made kings they name specifically the lines of Rig, where they name them the Skuldungs, the Skilfings, the Othlings, the Inglings, and that, the, that these were the men born from the gods. And they founded the great lines of our folk. So those would be the ones that would absolutely need to be protected the most. That verse above in Hinyulot is uh, it's verse 9, if anybody is interested in it. Um, it is telling us specifically to protect our bloodlines from foreign metal. In Old Norse, the word used is valha, which is, or walha, which is uh, essentially those those to be slain. That's what the word means. It means, you know, foreigners or, or people that we kill. We don't care about their law, that they are not of our folk. So what they're saying is what they're explaining in that uh, lay is that we are to protect our bloodlines, our soul, because that's where our soul passes through um, from foreign corruption. And for me, that really goes along with what Tacitus talks about, how, you know, our folk did not uh, introduce foreign elements to their people. And that's because they always had this idea of a soul that they had to protect. The Megan, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the Megan or the power of the gods that was transferred to them. And the the soul being passed through the blood 
Like you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mix that. Well, exactly. You wouldn't mix that because when you take things that are foreign and you bring them into your house, it influences the outcome and the fate of your house. For example, we can look at, uh, and I don't want to get into politics, but we can look at history and how countries and different empires came to be. And then every time we mentioned in past episodes, every time that they started uh, conglomerating with other tribes and people and introducing foreign beliefs, those great empires and those great countries ceased to, to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think we can, not to get political, I think we can see what's happening today and make that conclusion. Just to touch back, um, so I thought... I thought the word was scrailing because I remember reading the Vinland sagas and uh, where Eric the Red and then Leif Erikson find what we would now essentially call Greenland and Iceland and Eastern Canada. And they always referred to, they repeatedly referred to the people there as scrailings, which uh, I understood to mean foreigners. So are we just talking different different dialects from your word to my word, or are there um, different meanings that I'm getting mixed up? The word Welsh, for example, uh, many linguists argue that that word comes from the old Norse or Germanic word "wala," uh, which mm-hmm. means to slay or to kill, um, because there was great battles between the Welsh people and our Germanic ancestors at a time. But the word also, uh, whether or not it did actually apply to them, I mean, that's up for debate, but the word did mean to slay. And that's what our ancestors called foreigners. Anybody that wasn't part of the tribe was those that we slay, those that aren't under our law. Now, scrailing, from my understanding, that word applied to the people that were, that they encountered in the new lands in North America and Greenland and Iceland and such. I think it was specifically Greenland, though, if I recall. So it's basically a specific people, not necessarily a broader to slay, like um, like the word like the word you said. I've, I've heard you say it three times, and I can't even wrap my tongue around it. Walha. Think of Valhalla. It's the same word. Walha. Val- yep, Valha. Valha. Okay. All right. Okay, that makes sense. Sorry, went off on a tangent again. I, I apologize. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so when we're talking about the soul, uh, we have to talk about a few different concepts because I asked you at the beginning of it your idea of, of what the soul was, and you kind of uh, explained a really popular idea of people, how, how people understand the soul today being made up of different parts. And there's a little bit of a history to this, actually. So um, the person that really made this popular, uh, this line of thinking, is, is our buddy Edward Thorson or Stephen Flowers. Uh, some of you may have listened to one of our episodes in episode three or no, episode. Uh, yeah, episode four, actually, where we talk about his uh, concept of the nine worlds, how he used that, uh, how he had written his book Futhark from the. Uh, temple of Set with the Black Runa, but 
Edward Thorson was uh, one of the people that propagated this idea of this soul complex, that it was contained of different parts. And he actually wrote a diagram of it, and he called it his Northern Body Soul Complex. And he had written about this in his uh, Nine Doors of Midgard. Have you have you read that at all? I've I've read the like the first couple chapters of the Nine Doors of Midgard. Um, where I first encountered it, though, was um, a book exploring the Northern traditions by Galena Graskova. Okay, who is a very well known Universalist. This was in my early days. God well, Thorson <laughs> is tied to universalism as well. He's one of the founders of, of that line of thoughts. Well, I believe at the time of the authorship of the book, she was a member of the Troth, who Thorson, as I understand, also founded. So not surprising that they would uh, have a similar view. <laughs> True. Um, so he had, he had written this diagram and he had connected different parts, uh, of the soul to things like, uh, the other, your philia, hugor, mini, on, sulfur, leak, haminia, and hammer, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen some recent authors, uh, try to argue that Edward Thorson, uh, essentially took that from Carl Jung's thesis on the soul as well. And where Carl Jung was trying to break down the conscious and subconscious and the unconscious uh, mind in the greater consciousness of the folk soul, of how we have this uh, consciousness that's, a, that's below our conscious level of thought that connects us all and, and essentially makes art archetypes of the different mythologies and the symbolisms of different animals and it means different things and Carl Jung's work is actually really interesting to read and it is easy to kind of fall prey into his his line of thought especially if you're more if you lean more towards a um, I guess you would call it a dialectical way of viewing the world a materialist way of trying to understand spiritual concepts I would agree with that. And I think that's where a lot of us start out when we're new is trying to understand things, start by trying to understand things at a material or physical level. And a lot of us unfortunately get stuck there because it's easy. Carl Jung, and some people think he, some people mistakenly think that he was the one that actually had first written about the folk soul, but the folk soul was, um, probably most extensively written about by Wilhelm Grombeck in his work, Teutonic Mythology, uh, volume one specifically. And he, he actually took a anthropological view of the Germanic people where he was trying to write in his work the way that they perceived the world. And he looked at it uh, using Eddic sources and sources from the sagas and different folk tales as well, as well as interacting with uh, different cultures throughout Europe when he was putting together his, his book. And he had put together the ideas of the soul comprising of different things as well, but not necessarily um, in a uh, uh, psychological type of framework. And I guess most simply to put his view of the way the Germanic folk looked at the soul 
was that they didn't see themselves as separate from uh, these different things like Haminya or Huger or Hammer or the Philia, that, that the Germanic folk viewed these things as all a part of them. And there was a separation in their line of thinking of being able to discern between something that's spiritual and something that's material. But in regard to their relation to it, they didn't distinguish between that. Yeah, I I just got my copy of Culture of the Teutons, so I'm going to have to do some reading. But um, I don't know, I guess like I'm always like the basic level guy. I mean, it just makes sense that what we would call our soul would be more than just a, a general spirit, that there would be pieces to it. Right. Well, and and we know like the Philia, yeah, we, we have used that word many times is uh and it means follower like one that follows you and these are sent by earth and the desire to to uh a child when they're born and they come with essentially orlog or luck or the law the the word luck itself comes from the the word lock which means law and a child's luck or his fate was with him when he was born into his mother and his soul was called upon birth by his father recognizing him and the haminya the luck of his father would transfer over to that child that's the importance of the the naming process as well think about this too and and i've been thinking about this for a few nights the how our names work you know, our names are echoes of time. They go back thousands of years. Anthony, you were named after somebody. I was named after somebody. And that name has echoed throughout the centuries to this day. And we've inherited certain qualities that come with that name. And I was trying to think of a really easy way to put this in modern perspectives. And I think that we see it when we see like these stereotypes of how people are based on their names a good example being like oh she's a becky or she's a karen so what's interesting to me though about the philia being tied to the soul is i always and i've always understood the philia to be for lack of a better term like your your guardian angel and so i always viewed it as being apart from the person not a part of the person so the philia is uh actually sent from the desire from with with when you're born and there is a um throughout our myth descriptions of like swans or birds are really really important in our myths and whenever we're the myth refers to a bird. Uh, you can always assume, almost always assume that in some way that it's dealing with the soul. What's your understanding that happens to our soul uh, or to our being when we die? So we die. We, for whatever reason, stay around our bodies for three days. Uh, and then we start to walk the hell road to the hell thing where we get judged by the gods and goddesses and if you're not deemed to be a nithing you go to the halls of your ancestors um if you did well enough maybe you go to 
Valhall, or you know, there's some people that believe there's uh, some people that go to the halls of other gods and goddesses. Um, if you are anything, though, you're in for a uh, really, really unpleasant afterlife. And talking about the nithing is also important when we talk about the soul, too, because the nithing is a person that's been stripped of the clan soul. So when we talk about the soul, I do take the same perspective that Wilhelm Grombuch took, where the soul is uh, more than just the aspect that makes us an individual. Um, you know, we're how the how the old Germanic folk understood it, as Grombeck had had written about. When you use words in a conversation, for example, like I feel that in my gut or I feel that in my soul or I'm saying these words from my soul. This is coming from my being. That is what they understood the soul to be is that uh, that energy, that vitality, the hugor of it. Um, I think uh, the old word that they used to work that they used to use that Grombeck said had fallen out of disuse. The word that they actually would use most commonly for the word soul was the word fjord, which means like life and vitality. Mm-hmm. And that Haminya is a part of that because that has to do with the luck of that you inherit when your filia, when your soul comes here and your luck is given to you, your destiny is given to you. So that vitality of life is a destiny. And you inherit that destiny from your father and rig being the father of the Jarl lines and the Carl lines and the thrall lines. They inherited the destiny of the Aesir and our abilities to recognize the Aesir is our recognition of our attachment to that Haminya. Because of Haminya is like when I just mentioned about the names, how they echo back to past where these are power forces. Names were seen as charms. These are power forces that echo through time. And if you have somebody that has a great father that did great things, his legacy goes on for generations. People still speak his name. His power still continues. And you have to think of the gods being something similar to that in concept, although they're beyond that but something similar to that where their power rings on through us over time. And so we tie our essence to that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of goes back to the metaphor I used. If the folk soul is the sea, we're all just drops of water in that sea. Like we have what makes us an individual, but we are absolutely tied to it everyone that came before us for better and for worse you know we inherit the good but we inherit the bad as well absolutely and and that's the thing is that in modern day everybody sees themselves as an individual in ancient times it wasn't like that each person was seen as a part or a drop of the clan of their family the family of the clan the clan of the tribe And anything that an individual did could affect the rest of the tribe. So acts of Nith were things that went against natural law and things that hurt the tribe. And if somebody was, for example, outlawed or banished from the tribe, that was a very real uh, thing. And it had great consequences upon that individual because now they had no support uh, for life. 
And so whenever in the Lord and specifically in the Havamah where it talks about, you know, your reputation lives on. What it's really talking about is the judgment of Erd. And this shouldn't surprise anybody jumping back to uh, Hela not actually being a goddess, that that was an interpolation of Snorri based on Christian concepts. But Hel, the goddess of Hell, is actually Erd, the goddess of fate. It shouldn't be no big surprise to anybody that the goddess of fate is the goddess of Hell. And that it's her judgment, it's Erd's judgment, as the Lord tells us, what happens to the soul. So when we die, according to tradition, our soul essence stays with our body for a few days. So those that have remained here in this plane of existence can come see us and speak words, good words of us and bring us gifts to take on in the afterlife with us. Now, Odin in the Inglinga saga tells us or he commands the folk to burn are dead, essentially to cremate our remains, right? And except for those men of great consequence is what he says. So after these three days where our souls remain with our body, uh, our philia comes and gets us and leads us to hell. Now, our philia is also there to protect us from other beings that exist. And I had mentioned this in the last episode, how Yotun can come and snatch a soul. And this is what this has to deal with, with the Philia guiding us to hell, is to protect our soul from becoming lost. And there is a judgment. We stand before the gods. And as the lore describes it, that everyone passes through the hell judgment right even those who go to valhalla they still stop in hell none can go anywhere after their death except to hell first and from there they go to whatever station is assigned yeah which i mean just that concept of uh a yoden could grab your soul if if you've you know been stripped of that uh, your philia is gone. Like you got to hope for the best. So we talked a little bit about Golveg Hydebe and Ingraboda and Oroboda, but I didn't really touch on the fact that that person that or that being is the same being as 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 Ran. So Ran is Golveg Hyde, and we know from the lore as it describes Ran that she captures sailors with nets and pulls them to the bottom. Right. This is what I believe it's describing, because when she regenerates, uh, it's like she's able to corrupt that soul that she's born into in this world, and she's able to regenerate. So I do want to highlight here that we are talking about like some type of reincarnation. So our lore, although it doesn't use the word reincarnation, it does highlight several instances where things have regenerated after their deaths. Angrobata being one. In the in the sagas, we see a lot of examples where the Icelanders like they recognize like the soul coming back to people. And when we talk about our names being important because they're echoes of time from past ancestors that continue to live on, Another important aspect of that is that if somebody's misnamed, how that affects that person. 
because that person can feel balanced and unlost about, you know, where their where their focus at, where they belong. If that name is not properly assigned to that person, then it can have effects on them for their entire life. Yeah. And I mean, uh, so the big thing that I uh, I read that made me think reincarnation. Well, the two things, actually, first and foremost, Balder coming back after Ragnarok, like he's in Helheim and he comes back like that's that's a very direct form of reincarnation. Um, but another one, I want to say the names Helgi, but mm-hmm. I forget I forget that's which right. saga it is, but um, there was this first great warrior named Helgi, and uh, along this family line, any child that was named Helgi was just as great or greater than the original than the original Helgi, and that's attributed to the child of this the uh, the child that was given this name being a reincarnation of that original Helgi, and also why it was taboo among our ancestors to name the uh to name to give a child the same name as a living relative that that's uh was a very taboo thing to do actually you know what's interesting in in my own personal life uh, i have a son and i named him a very unique name and, mm-hmm. and i just heard the name once uh, and I knew, like, I recognized the name. I was like, "Oh man, that's a very strong name." When I have a son, I'm gonna, I'm gonna name him that, right? And yeah. I had no clue who or what this real person was in life. But later on in life, now that I've studied my ancestry and genealogy and understand like my family clan and history and where I come from, that I named my son from the progenitor of the ross clan uh, i assume your line ties to this clan yeah that's that's where my clan comes from that's my name my surname where i come from okay so i had no idea about this person being you know i didn't even know his name for a number of years when i named my son that but mm-hmm. later on i found out his name and it is the name of the founder of the Ross clan, the progenitor of the Ross clan. That's that's yeah, that's I mean, if that if that's not a sign you're being influenced, I don't know what is. Our souls, I believe, attached to names because those names represented things of honor that the gods deemed and judged to be worthy. So when we die, we don't actually speak to the gods. Our philia speaks our saga to the gods. Our philia tells the gods our story. And essentially, the person who doesn't have a philia is damned because they have no one there to speak of their great deeds through their life. And when the philia speaks our story, that's what the gods deem when they judge us as being of folk or a spirit of honor that is worthy to be kept in the kinwell versus ones that are 
discarded or sent to Niflheim for punishment? Uh, so like an interesting side note, like I actually just found this out not too long ago. Uh, before I was born, when my mom found out she was pregnant with me, she actually wanted to name me Thor. That She was gunning for that. Um, a lot of it was her favorite Marvel hero is Thor, but she always felt a particular pull for the name and what that name entailed to her. Uh, my father did not want a superhero for a son, hence... Um, my mom named me uh, Joshua after the Dolly Parton song. I've never heard it, but my mom told me it was a song about how having a son saved this woman's life. And I don't know where I got Anthony, but just <laughs> but just just thinking on names like, man, I could have been Thor. I could have been <laughs> Thor legit. That is interesting. You know, I, I do like to try to keep my my worldview or my perspective of our faith beyond just academia where, you know, it's all just, well, this book says this and this book says that because I believe our faith is a living faith that is here and now. I believe in signs and symbols of, you know, the gods and I believe they speak to us in dreams and I do believe that our souls uh, live on in that they do come back and that we are able to call um, the folk there. And getting back to folkishness in this sense is the importance of, and you you probably haven't heard, you know, the story of Frere and Gerd where he gives, where he falls madly in love and he wants to marry Gerd and he sends a gift and she rejects it at first. And eventually his sword is taken and he gives up his sword for her hand in marriage. Yeah. Right. So he gives a sword to Skirner, who uh, delivers it to Gerd. But she's the one that ends up it ends up we'll get into this when we get into the lore as we're going through the different uh, ages and stuff and wh where each event happens. But the reason why I'm bringing it up now is because uh, Frere, by him giving up his sword to marry outside of his tribe like that. He actually gave the thing over, which destroys the world and kills gods. Yeah. I think that there's a huge lesson in this about focusedness and preserving, you know, our soul as a clan, as a tribe um, from the ancients to this day, where we're told constantly by our ancestors and in historical writings of uh, historians like Tacitus, where they did not intermingle or foreign elements into their people and that this was because they believed that the soul had to be protected because it was the gold that flowed through their blood which yeah. came from the gods themselves as the lord describes yeah and if you just give that up you seal your doom it's like there, it's a constant reminder to us every time we read this like the lay of hinla i mean it's that's what that is is the contest where they're describing whose line was more nobler. So, you know, talking about how like we don't intermingle, you know, like what, like how we were doomed because Frey, or not because Frey, um, the symbolism of Frey giving up his power to marry Gerd, who is Golveg Hyde's Gerd. daughter. Um, exactly. But just that, um, well, yes, 
there are a significant number of gods that could be said to come from Jotunstock or, you know, the couple that marry Jotuns, um, but wanting to protect, but also having to protect the lines. Um, that can be a gray area. Like, I've just heard it, oh, uh, I've heard it before. Oh, well, the gods married outside of their tribe, so it's okay for me to have relations with other people. It do- The blood doesn't matter. It's not applicable. Like, I, I can't, I don't have a better phrase for it. I don't know if anything I said made sense right there. My head is jumbled. This is just a really big concept, and my mind's freaking, my mind's all over the place. Like, it is a really big concept, and it's really hard to the to try to take uh, metaphorical representations of things that are described to us in the lore and and break it down in a way that is simple for people to understand those concepts. So, to do so, what I'm suggesting is that our soul is a life or energy vitality that is given to us. It's delivered to us by the Desir upon our birth. And Earth chose the soul because it's already passed through Earth's judgment before as being a soul of honor and gives it to specific parents, or well, we've already discussed who has authority over that, but it's delivered to parents and the fate essentially is given to that child. And that child's will or their hugar is manifest in their mind, in their actions, what some people have described as the hammer or the thoughts that project outside of their bodies. So think of it as a concept, for example, where you um, started something viral on social media. You didn't even know it was gonna go viral. You just posted it, it was funny, and then all of a sudden you've affected all of these people. That's how our ancestors viewed what the soul's power was. And they call that, like you said, the Megan, the power of the Ass. Like mm-hmm. when Thor stood on the river by Utgard and raises his hammer, you know, that he recognizes his power, his Megan, his authority. And that when we're born from Rig, we've inherited that power of the gods that was given to us when Rig recognized the Yarl line as having that authority. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a simpler way to word it. <laughs> hey, you know, the only, uh, this episode is probably going to go over an hour a little bit, but I do think it's a, it's an important concept that we should kind of talk a little bit longer than we normally do. Um, in fact, Kaya was telling me his biggest complaint about our episodes is that they're not long enough. And I told him, I said, if I, if I make two-hour episodes, you know, it's going to be less people that listen because two hours, man, that's a commitment, you know, to, to listen. And, of course, yeah. those are the people I want to reach, but I want I want the things that we talk about to, to, to even reach, you know, the average person that just, you know, might have an hour to waste and – listens to one of our, our episodes and has the ability to actually acquire a good, sound, theological uh, faith in our ancient religion that our ancestors called Fornstida or the customs of old. 
to a certain degree, I feel like those people that really don't know but are trying to learn, like those are the people that we need to be putting this out to the most. You know, so we need to be able to to deliver it to them in bite-sized pieces that they'll be able to uh, wrap their minds around. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of it with the knowledge. And when we're talking about Megan again, we're like somebody that has that quality in their soul will recognize what we're speaking about, where they will recognize that authority of the gods. They'll recognize that power in that relationship. I have a saying where, where I always say a, a person or people in general recognize a strong horse when they see one. Those with power emanate it. You know, I mean, whether for good or for bad, and you know, like recognize a strong her- horse. People recognize a powerful concept, a, a powerful person. Like they feel it. Well, in when, when we talk about the soul being a force or vitality of life, uh, we we there is a power that's to it, but that power is not always realized and. Uh, the reason why I'm saying that is because we had a conversation the other day after our last episode where you were asking me about, you know, like how the thrall and the Carl works in the Jarl with the soul and, and where they, you know, like, am I a thrall because I'm doing whatever type of work? That's what fate had given me. And my my thoughts on it are that these are qualities that are inherent in the soul, but the soul doesn't always necessarily realize those qualities they may lay dormant in somebody and they may never actualize it in their life um in that a yarl can breed another yarl or they could breed a carl or a thrall but that the other lines could only breed like a carl could breed a carl or a thrall but a thrall could only breed a thrall or a thrall soul which mm-hmm. means that it's 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 more of a simple soul in the sense not of a slave but a soul that is more of a worker type of person. They don't think of like bigger concepts of, of theology or philosophy. These are people that just live their life very simply. Um, I think we all know like the difference between exoteric and esoteric or inner guard or guard, the inner circle, the outer circle where there's people that need like the ritual aspect of things to connect, but they're not so innately spiritually connected to it. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being somebody that just wants to work. You know, what's interesting about Beowulf in that being the first utilization of the word soul in the English language, which we've discussed earlier is also bail wolf bail most likely coming from the word bear and then how our like father and a mother and a child is often described as being born from the bears like a woman wife was called a bear a female bear and a male husband or father was called a bear. There was an old hunting practice of our folk. It was a ritual where they would go out and they would slay a bear. And when they did this, they would have like a a gond or stick, like a 
magic stick that had copper or brass or golden uh, rings on the end of the stick. And as they're slaying the bear, they would hit the bear with the thing, and they 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 captured the soul of the bear on those rings, and they could transfer the power over to other people. And this was actually the ritual was a rite of passage in many times in very, very ancient days, the way that somebody rose to authority and within a clan to be like a tribal elder was having to do a bear hunt and capturing the soul of that bear. The bear is really significant to the soul because we see this repeated in the lore many times, like with Odin taking the shape of a bear, uh, Thor be clearly associated with the bear. You, you've probably heard the name like Thorborn or Thorbjorn. The word Bjorn itself means bear. It also means born. And then what I really, really loved is when you start digging into like the history of the berserkers and stuff, uh, they're associated with the bear skin, berserk mm -hmm. bear skin or bear shirt. And often they've they when they would die they would wrap up the bodies of the warriors in bear skins because they believed they could trans transport that person's soul um to another place i would speculate that would that they were actually trying to transport the berserker to ragnarok and they they would use the skin of the bear as a magical uh covering that facilitated that transportation because the way that the bear was viewed is that it had properties associated with being able to travel, thus the hibernation of the bear when it slept, uh, that it would be able to travel and it could take souls in traveling and it could also uh, move souls. Um, and this soul is, is clearly linked with the soul traveling and birth. I, I've I've never heard that before. I'm I'm. They believe that after they slayed it, hitting the bear with copper would uh, essentially capture the soul or the soul essence. Yeah, yeah. And and they would actually during a marriage ceremony they would reenact a bear where the woman would essentially to beat the bear with this golden rod stick, this gondor stick that had the soul of the bear and the husband would dress up in the bear skin and that, and she would like take the soul and put it on that gondor stick. And during the ceremony as well, there was like an exchange of a ring where the wife would give the husband a ring, which represented her giving him authority over her soul and that's why the woman in a relationship assumes the soul of her husband she assumes the luck of her husband and actually gives a little bit more depth to the wedding ceremonies i've read about so bears are important i'm going on a bear hunt <laughs> <laughs> they're very important uh to our people and uh the story of volan volan the smith wayland um where he sits on the bear skin in the woods where he becomes a bear. You've, yeah. you've read about that story, right? Yes. So, I mean, that's exactly what they're talking about too. And when he makes these golden rings, like Draupnir, the rings that regenerate, these have powers over uh, the regeneration of rebirth and regrowth. 
So when Odin's given Draupnir, that's what that authority signifies in the lore, is that he's actually given ultimate authority over the regeneration of things. Which gives Draupnir even more prominence because it's not just the fact that uh, it can make nine more rings of itself to continue to give give gold, which was a big custom for you know Jarls giving to their Karls or you know their warriors in general, but that it was also the transference of that power and so tying to the regenerative properties. Sorry, wrapping my mind around it. Like it, it's funny how when it's funny is not the right word, but there's a lot of things where you know we're talking and we're doing these. And because I'm still learning so much, there's a lot of things that p- pieces of the puzzle start clicking together and I get kind of stuck for a second. I understand that there's a lot of people that disagree, like I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that disagree on, you know, whether or not we have like a soul or not, or whether that was a Christian concept. And they argue whenever Odin breathed, owned into us that he gave us a soul. Um, and I think that's partly right. I think that he gave us life. He gave us like a spirit or animation to us. He gave us purpose. He gave us a destiny essentially by doing mm-hmm. that. But the soul, whenever a child is born, they have luck or fate that's assigned to them in the filia, in the heminia of the folk, of the tribe, of the family, of the clan, uh, protect that child and so the soul is more than just the own and i actually think that it's a it's the more christian concept is to believe in like the the pneuma or the spirit that the christian texts speak about um versus our concept of a hamingya that our soul is tied to not that it is the soul of our essence or our being because that is something that's different, but that it is a part of it because our folk didn't see a, a like a line drawn in the sand of like, oh, no, no, that's not my soul. That's the Heminia. No, they recognize that the Heminia affects every single aspect of their soul and that their fate affects every single aspect of their soul and that their body affects every single aspect of their soul. So. Some dissayers may say, for example, well, if our folk actually believed in the soul concept, why would there be tales about them believing that their ancestors lived in a certain hill or a mound or a burial somewhere? And that's because uh, they recognized that the physical aspect of the person still carried energy and luck about it. And so having that soul or that any aspect of that person there was a charm or an energy that would protect them. And not to mention that, you know, with Odin commanding us to cremate our dead, those that weren't cremated, they actually would not go back to the hell thing. They would stay uh, present. Their souls could like hang in like this balance between the uh the other world and this world and this is where like the concepts of like draugers come in and different type of a 
where you have these bodies or souls that can affect you in positive ways as well that were once human, but not in this world anymore and yet still affected in a spiritual or physical way. I mean, to me, honestly, the naysayers, I feel, fall on semantic arguments. Like, even uh, even if our ancestors didn't call the soul a soul, like, everything that they attribute are things that we today would understand as a soul or piece of the soul. So, I mean, I'm not trying to talk bad on nobody, but... I mean, we're a religion, we are a spirituality. If we didn't have some concept of soul or spirit tied to us individually and collectively, again, like we said before about other subjects, we would be the only people that did it. Like, our people individually and collectively have a soul. Now, whether you want to look at that as just one piece or more or multiple parts tied to a particular body, We've got one. Well, and I think in modern days that people, the way that they view the concept of the soul, you know, and they are getting caught up on semantics because I've seen these arguments in in different heathen chats where people are like, no, the the soul actually exists for our folk. And other people are like, well, no, it doesn't. And then they try to criticize other people for uh, ascribing things like the hooger and the hammer and the heminia to the soul. Um, And they are getting caught up on semantics because it, it isn't about that our ancestors saw like a complex of all these different things that made us who that made our soul what it is they clearly understood the concept of a drop from the sea of the ocean and they clearly understood that that drop returns to that well or to that sea with the greater collective of folk and they also understood that there were different elements that were given to us like Hugur and Hammer form and shape and thought and will but that was all tied collectively not as an individual so today I think a lot of people view our souls as like our personality but that's not exactly correct either because our personality although is a reflection of our soul our personality in ancient times, there was no individual personality. There was the clan, there was the tribe, everything revolved around that. There was nothing outside of the tribe. There was us and there was everything outside of us. Yeah, you were an individual. If if you were even counted as an individual, it was the very last deciding factor you were family tribe and clan first and foremost and that's where nith comes in you know nith being uh you know things that stripped away the honor of the family the clan or the tribe things that affected them in a greater whole in a negative way because we get back to morality and ethics for our folk having frith was the essence of your soul that's what tied you all together and the honor was that which was the result of that frith and so anytime you did something that broke the frith or broke the honor or damaged the honor uh there would be consequences for that tying the concept of beowulf's the soul with the sea uh 
you can read about some of the punishments of crimes that uh, are written in some of the different Germanic law codes. And one of the punishments was like if somebody went into and defiled like the idols of the gods in any way, that they were to be buried on the seashore to their head in the sand out as the waves come in and drown them, right? To me, that's well, significant because it's almost like the 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 kin is what is purging or purifying or killing that bad element of dishonor. Well, when I when I heard consequences, the first thing that came to my mind was Blood Eagle. I've I've heard that's quite the consequence. Yeah, like I like I don't know what you have to do to get that, but what I know what what I do know is that I want no part of it. <laughs> you don't want your lungs ripped out to make wings on your back? Nah, you know, like I feel like that would be wasted on me. I think the point that we learn is that that kinsmen that the folk together make one soul. And I think Beowulf really illustrates well. Let me get a passage from Beowulf, actually, since we're talking about it. He did off the golden ring about his neck. The brave-hearted prince gave it to the thane. The young spear warrior, his gold adorned helmet, ring and mail shirt, commanded him to use them well. You are the last remaining of our kin, of the Vengmundings. Uh, Fate has swept away all of my line as per the decree of destiny. Warriors in valor, I after them now shall go. That was the oldest one's last word of thoughts of the heart before he chose the pyre. The hot battle flame from his breast went his soul to Sulfestra Dom, which you can which you can translate as the judgment handed down by the righteous. To me, that illustrates everything about how the soul works, that our soul comes from the kinwell, in that we return to that, but we're judged by the honor that we've added to that. And that's why we've always, as a folk, placed honor as being the number one thing that holds us true in this world, in our life, in our families, and everything that we do. Uh, I heard an uh, I heard uh, an interesting thing on honor that honor isn't a, isn't a word; it's an action. Explain but it also that. Makes, well, it, it kind of goes back to when we were talking about the nine noble virtues. Honor is something that you know everybody talks about, but nobody can really really actually describe. You know, but when you see somebody doing the right things and doing things that not only build themselves, but, you know, their family, not just their reputations, but the reputation of their family and the people that they are around, um, that those are very honorable things. So it's, it's like, it's not, it's not what you say. It's not, it's what you do, you know? And when you do the wrong things, when you do things that, weaken your weaken your your family's reputation or you know you walk into like if you walk into a bar and you meet somebody and you're like oh i'm anthony's buddy 
You know, if they're like, oh, that dude's a piece of crap, F that dude. You know, that's that's a dishonorable thing for me. And I just painted a bad picture for you. But if you walk in and you're like, oh, hey, I'm Anthony's buddy. And everybody's like, oh, that's a really good dude. I like that dude. You know, come on and hang out. That's a very honorable thing, not just for myself, but for you. Like, it's not like it's a great tattoo, but it's something that even I have a hard time explaining. Like, it's just it's actions that benefit you and everybody around you. Like, what did you contribute? Absolutely. And that's why our ancestors viewed that Heminja or that power, that luck, um, as something that could be transferred to others as well, because it's it's a it's a reverberation of uh, everything in existence. Your actions that you're doing, it's like the butterfly effect. You know, you slam a car door here, a butterfly flaps its wings in China, as they say. And yeah. it's the same way where every little thing you do um, has effects. And back to the moral code of the the slave morality and then the master morality of where we judge our actions or we judge our morality, the things that happen around us based on its effect. Did it affect good or did it affect ill? Did it cause misfortune or problems? I think about my legacy of my children all the time, you know, like what I leave to them, what I teach them, you know, they'll pass on for generations to come. The things that we're building today are going to have effects for many generations to come. Uh, you know about the Hoff that our kindred is building, and this will be the first Hoff in the Pacific Northwest. And we're really proud of what we're doing. And these are things that everybody today is that's part of our our tribe is working towards and putting not just money but their labor and blood and sweat and tears into doing because we are thinking of our children and our grandchildren and what we can leave behind for them and that's how i look at our soul is something that's not just a thing that goes into the afterlife but it's also left here in this world as well which if we talk about like freya keeping half of the slain like in her volk finger and then odin taking half of the slain i've always wondered about that and what i've always wondered is are they talking about freya keeping half of the slain meaning there's a hundred warriors she keeps 50 of them or does it actually mean that she keeps half of each slain that there's a part of that slain that's left in the volkfanger in the hill because that's what a volkfanger is it's the hill where the where the dead lay i know we've went off on some tandems tonight a little bit and did want to associate another thing that we had discussed in a previous episode with the soul specifically where we were talking about the uh, tree of life Idrasil and idun and the apples and maybe the tree of life being like an apple tree and mm -hmm. that it feeds the gods the apples because our lord does describe our souls as being fruit from the tree of life. And what if we do feed the gods, our souls are 
the food of the gods that that goes on for eternity you know and as long as we refresh that as, as long as we're constantly sending our souls as long as we're living honorably then our souls are able to continue to feed uh, the power of our god that give them the megan if you will because the recognition of our gods is the megan of the gods yeah i mean that would you know that would also kind of tie into that thought of you know as long as we survive our gods survive i like that analogy though i've i've uh, i've never heard of our soul being uh tied to uh considered uh fruits but i like it like it it makes sense and i don't know you know the if that's an accurate way of perceiving what that means i mean some of our conversations is you know personal thoughts and ideas but to me it makes a lot of sense and i always try to find the connections when i'm reading the lore of like okay well how does this connect to this and that's where my line of thinking went with the volkfanger and the souls to valhalla went as well is i've always kind of had this like intuitive thought about that as being freya keeps the bodies of the dead and that's the part of their soul that she keeps that lives on and regenerates the earth. And then the soul itself, like the that vitality, that fuel, as our ancients called it, um, returns to Earth's well, to to judgment. I mean, that kind of makes sense too, because with those with keeping that little bit there, like that allows that same essence to be reborn you know like the the spirit itself might go to valhalla but what contributed to that soul getting there uh is allowed to come back and create another also tying into freya's um aspect of uh regeneration and feeding the earth you know with the nutrients of the bodies that break down and but also it also ties into how our folk they would go to mounds where their ancestors had been buried and the hordiger and they would they believe that the ancestors existed there and they were they were right they are existing there and their energy and their hominia still affects the the folk around them that they left behind the old ward tree you you've heard of like a ward tree and so like a ward tree it's a very common practice where a person has like a war tree. It's like a protective tree. And as long as that tree is uh, is lively and, and has a lot of vitality about it, the luck of that house and the property and the uh, fertility of the land there would be protected by that tree spirit and energy. Um, and it's the same way with keeping uh, your ancestors uh, in a specific area where their essence still pervades there and has effect spiritually in, in the physical realm. And this would also tie into, I've read about some kings, some great kings being buried and people still going and giving offerings to that king's grave so that he might continue to bless them in the land with good luck. Or when a king sends somebody off on a voyage and he, you know, says, uh, may luck go with you and he's sending his luck with that person he's transferring his power his familia his luck to that person and if you break it down into even more methodical thinking on this uh all of the king's agents his 
his guards, his warriors, his generals, and all of these things are acting with the power of his authority. And that's carried across the land. Which would also explain why horrible kings were sacrificed. Because nobody wanted to put up with that shit. Well, this has definitely been more... This has definitely been more in-depth than I thought it would be, but I I enjoyed it. You know, sorry it was more you than me. It's okay. It's a... It's a difficult concept to really talk about because um, you're dealing with really convoluted ideas that have been obscured, not just by the history of time, but has been obscured by it being poetic in nature and the way it's been passed down to us, where we have like a play on words in Beowulf where the word soul is used for the first time. And he's using it in a poetic sense of, you know, that my soul, my soul returns to the soul. It returns back to the sea. So I think that's intentional, but I think that's because there was a real concept of the soul existing and that it was a small part that belonged to the greater whole and so the things that we do were judged upon our honor and in our actions that we've added to the that clan soul which was everything to our folk and that is judged by the gods who are the the leaders of the Aesir tribe, which we are a part of. We are descended from them. Thus, they are our judges. Well, and I think, too, like, it's, I think, like, as far as the soul goes, it's probably, if not the most, one of the most direct and personal personal things that we, we, uh, we have to understand and deal with in the spiritual in in the spiritual realm like it really is what affects us the most it is and and i think the evidence of the soul is like very ancient these are very ancient sayings like you know i feel it in the depths of my soul like these are very ancient uh phrases that have passed on for thousands of years through many tongue changes and and speech shifts of the germanic tongues where we still use those phrases to this very day and that is what our ancestors view that soul as as that thing that inside of you that knows and recognizes its power and where it comes from the one thing that ties us most directly to the past and to the future god this is deep dude The name was a mighty charm because it carried the history, not only of the bearer, but of his ancestors and of the whole clan. Deeds lie concealed in its sound and they may blossom out into an addition so that the name becomes an epic and brief. As soon as we replace our soul by the word Hemenia, the thought is translated from our pale view of life to the full-blooded and muscular view of the past. Because the Hemenya is that thing which we continue to be protected by those who came before us and the path that they set down for us to walk and to carry on to the next generation. 
I am Anthony. My co-host is James. This has been The Sacred Stew. Hope y'all have a good night.